If you have your Bible, go and grab those for our scripture reading today. We're reading out of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. I'm using the New American Standard Version if you're curious. Now, in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, today we see that, and we have, this comes after the conflict we saw in John chapter 7. And what I would like us to see in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, is I would like us to see the grace that Jesus Christ exemplifies to three different characters, or at least two different characters in our story. Watch it with me. John chapter 8. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees, however, brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, notice that, center of the court before everyone, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus answered, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. Amen. Uh, Today, I'd like to talk to you about grace Shame and judgment. Uh, Buckle up. Here today, uh, you and I, we have a very small view of the grace of God. That you and I here today have a very short-sighted and one-sided view of God's grace in our lives. But perhaps the reason we do not truly understand God's grace is because of the culture that we live in. We live in a culture of shame that thrives on the idea of shaming other people into submission. Especially since COVID broke out, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, How many of you have ever been shamed for not wearing a mask? Okay, all right, about half of us. Uh, I remember I was hiking one time, and I was probably 50 feet away from the nearest person, and somebody is walking on the other side of the trail far away, and Cash, she goes by and says, where's your mask, you know? But the opposite is true as well. I would imagine some of us have been shamed for wearing our mask, Amen. We kind of, we live in this culture that we really like to shame people into submission. And it's really bad in something called uh, internet courage. Internet courage is the idea that people have more courage to speak online than they do in person. Anytime someone posts stuff on Facebook, what happens? You know, internet courage. People type up mean antagonistic rebuttals often splattered with shame. Anytime a news article pops up, 
especially a political one, what's all over it? Shame, right? Of how this politician is not intelligent or is not moral or whatever. But then we, we take this culture of shame and then we, then we kind of bring it home with us. Anytime our kid messes up, what is the temptation of a parent's heart? It is to say, what were you thinking? And then probably something like dummy. Right? Anytime we mess up at work, what is the boss's temptation towards us? But if you think about it, no wonder we live in a culture of shame because culture, because shame is not from God. Can I say that? That shame is not from God. God is not up in the sky ready to kick us in the head whenever we do wrong. God is the opposite of shame. And this world is controlled, it's influenced by the prince of the power of the air. What does it say in Ephesians 6.12? It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Let me just speak truth. Shame is not from God. Grace is from God. Shame is not the gospel. Grace is the gospel. Shame is not Jesus. Grace is Jesus. And friends, without a deep understanding, profound understanding of grace, we will take the depravity and the shame that is in our culture And we judge other people by that same measure. We judge ourselves. We splatter it all over our family, our children, and even into the people inside of the church. And this tension that I see between grace, shame, and judgment is the tension that I see in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Because something uh, shameful happens in our story. There is a woman who is caught in the very act of adultery. And she is brought before the perfect Savior named Jesus Christ. And she is essentially put on trial before all of the crowds and all of the Jews there in the temple. And before the scribes and the Pharisees. And they splash upon her the shame and judgment of the law. But instead of Jesus giving this woman what she deserved according to the law, he extends to her Grace and mercy and love. So that is where we will be today. If you have your Bible, turn again into John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And as you turn to John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, today I'm going to kind of break all of the preaching rules. They told me in seminary to uh, arrive, to, to have all of your illustrations and all of your content kind of point toward one central conclusion called, a uh, fancy word called homiletical proposition, i.e. a point, okay? But today I want to do something a little bit different. I want to actually see three different principles, three different principles of grace, and we see them based upon the three different characters in this story. So notice with me, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, notice the three principles of grace that we see here. I'm going to read the passage again in its entirety, and then we will see the characters in isolation. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Why did he go there? Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. And the scribes and Pharisees saw their opportunity. They brought... A woman, they grabbed her, caught her in adultery, having set her in the center of the court. And they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery. 
Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women, what then do you say? That word you there is in the position of emphasis. What then do you say? They were saying this testing him or tempting him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus instead stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. And when they persisted, and asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He wrote on the ground twice. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone. And the woman, where she was in the center of the court, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. Who are the three characters in this story? You have Jesus, you have the woman, and then you have the Pharisees. Notice character number one. What does Jesus do? What do we see about him here? Notice where does he go before this story happens. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, But then Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. What's the obvious question there? Why? Why does Jesus go up on the Mount of Olives? Can I give you an idea? The Mount of Olives to the center of the city of Jerusalem is about three kilometers. So after John chapter 7, Jesus walks about three kilometers up on the Mount of Olives for some random reason. Why? What happened in John chapter 7? If you remember in John chapter 7 is the Feast of Booths. What is that? It is one of the three annual feasts that... Jewish people would migrate or pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. If you remember what happened in John chapter 7, what does Jesus reveal? He reveals three things. He reveals his identity. What is his identity in John chapter 7 and throughout all of the gospel of John? That he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the promised one, that he is the Christ. He, and what is second? That he is the son of God. And then what else does he do? Then he tells the crowd of his intention to go to heaven and to obey the father at all costs. And then what does he reveal in John chapter 7 verses 37 through 39? He invites them to believe in eternal life. And then what are the, how do they respond? You know, a careful reader of the New Testament would think after John chapter 7, as Jesus unfolds to them his identity, his intention, and his invitation to eternal life, we would presuppose that there would be a great revival. How do they react? How do the Jews react? They try to seize him. How do the Pharisees react? They want to kill him. And then how do his brothers react? They want to put him to death. They want him to die at the end of John 7. Now imagine you were Jesus. Put on his sandals for just a moment. How is he feeling at the end of John chapter 7? He has been spending the last two and a half years ministering to the nation of Israel, healing the people, feeding them, and despite it all, they want to now kill him. Now, hopefully you haven't had anybody try to kill you before, um, but I would imagine Jesus' position is one of great discouragement and one of great uh, downtrodden, maybe we even go to say despair. But in the midst of his discouragement, what does Jesus do? He doesn't just 
He goes up on the Mount of Olives to pray and to be with his Father. What do we know about Jesus doing on the Mount of Olives? In Luke chapter 22, Jesus goes to the Father and he prays. Jesus, in a sense, goes away after a time of discouragement and he recharges with the Father. He walks with God to recharge his batteries, so to speak. Perhaps we should do the same. That when we grow tired or discouraged or downtrodden, instead of quitting or pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps or seeking something else to do, maybe we should go up on the Mount of Olives to be with our Father. When your heart is discouraged, seek the Father, be alone, and recharge. In response to the discouragement in John chapter 7, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives to recharge, but then notice what he does in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again into the, temp, into the temple, and all the people were coming to him. Notice that. And he sat down and began to teach them. Wait a second. What did they just get done trying to do? They just got done trying to kill Jesus. So Now, let me just say something. If somebody's trying to kill you, what is the most likely action you're going to take? You're going to run away from that person. What does Jesus do here? He recharges on the Mount of Olives by being with his Father, and then he re-engages in ministry. So many times, in times of discouragement, in times of despair, we run away from the very circumstance that is pulling us down. But what does Jesus do here? He does the very opposite. He re-engages in ministry. Friends, it is very easy when we are discouraged or battered or hurt by people to then distance ourselves from those people. But what I see here in John chapter 8 is that instead of washing our hands from the people that have brought to us pain, we should rather recharge with the Father and re-engage in love and in ministry. But this is where the story gets dicey. Notice in verses 3 through 6, notice the second character that comes on the scene. We see Jesus, he escapes from the Mount of Olives to recharge and re-engage in verses 1 and 2. But then he enters into the temple, and then who is right behind him? Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. having set her in the center of the court, for all to see. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman, we can confirm that this woman has been caught in the very act of adultery, and now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. What happens at the exact moment Jesus recharges and then re-engages in ministry? People come to test him. In the midst of Jesus re-engaging, in the midst of him teaching in the temple with all of these Jewish people all around, they find this woman in all of her shame, drag her from the house to the center of the court, to the very holiest place on earth, to test Jesus. They probably throw this woman who is probably half naked in all of her shame and all of her vulnerability. They throw her in the midst of the court, in the midst of the temple with all of these crowds. I mean, just, just imagine with me. Okay, if, if chronologically speaking, where we come in John, John chapter 7, what's going on? The Feast of Booths, which means what? That all of the Jews are 
in Jerusalem. So there are thousands of people at the temple, and then the Pharisees and scribes find this woman who is completely vulnerable, living in all of her shame. They drag her out of the house, plop her right down in the middle of the temple in front of the nation of Israel. And what does this woman deserve? What does she deserve? According to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, she deserves to be stoned to death. That in front of everyone that is sitting in the temple, in front of everyone, she deserves to have her head bludgeoned and her ribs cracked until breath leaves her lungs. She deserves, according to the law, to die. But there's two sources of hypocrisy here. I'm going to talk about one of them here in just a minute. But I want you to notice kind of when, when the woman comes in verse 3 before Jesus, what's the obvious question that you must ask? I was sitting in a staff meeting this week, and we were just kind of talking about the text, and one of the staff members says this, where's the man, right? I mean, the, the woman is there, but where's the man, right? The person that she's having an affair with. Because according to the law, according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, he should also be put to death. So you see hypocrisy here amongst the Pharisees, which tells me something very profound, that they don't really care about abiding by the law. All they really care about is trying to trap the Savior of the world, the perfect one, in a trap They could care less about what the law truly says. All they care about is taking down this man named Jesus. But I want you to notice, how does Jesus respond to them? They bring this woman, probably half naked, and all of her shame and all of her vulnerability, and she is terrified, and she is ashamed of her actions. And then how does Jesus respond to them? Verse 6, they were saying this to test them so that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus, he doesn't speak first. Notice that. He doesn't say a word off the bat. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, in the original language, his finger here is in the position of emphasis. And with his finger, he wrote on the ground. But when they persisted, notice they persisted. He keeps drawing and it's bothering them. He straightened up and said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. How does Jesus respond to this very difficult situation? He draws in the sand, but then what does he point out here? We've already seen one area of hypocrisy. They didn't bring the man for him to be stoned as well. But then what's the second area of hypocrisy that he points out? He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. What are the Pharisees overlooking? They're overlooking the law that they, that they supposedly abide by, but then they're overlooking their own sin that they themselves act out. The principle that I see, the first principle in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, is principle number one of grace, is to think grace before judgment. To think grace before judgment. Because think about the culture of the Pharisees in the first century. If you're familiar with the New Testament, then you probably know kind of some of the stories of the Pharisees and scribes. What do they thrive on? 
They thrive on shame. They don't even thrive on obeying the law. They don't even obey it here. And according to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, they thrive rather on shame, on taking men's mistakes and smushing them under what they say the law says. This is found in Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 through 4. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Friends, do not be like the Pharisees. Do not be like the Pharisees. Let me just speak to you, not to your head, but to your heart. This is off script. So many times we look at all of the wrongs of others without looking at the wrongs that we create. So many times we are so consumed with how other people have hurt us, other people, what other people have done to us, what mistakes they make, and we totally forgo all of the grace and the forgiveness of sin that we have received. That is what Jesus is trying to get them to wake up to, to think about grace before judgment by realizing their own sin before they judge another. But then notice the second principle. We see the principle to the Pharisees to think grace before judgment. But then Jesus, after he gets done kind of raking the Pharisees over the coals, he then turns his attention to the adulterous woman sitting in the middle of the court of the temple with all of these people around. And he says to her in verse 10, extending to her grace, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. I see two different principles that Jesus gives to this woman regarding grace and shame. Principle number two is this. The grace of God overpowers shame and sin. The grace of God overpowers shame and sin. What does she deserve? She deserves to be killed right there in front of everyone else. But instead, the Lord Jesus does not condemn her. And guess what? He could have. He has every right to stone her to death. But instead, he shows her grace, displaying the grace of God overpowering shame. Let me just, let's just, let's just do this. Take a step back for just a second. And I want you to picture how the woman feels. How does the woman feel as she is sitting there? She is half naked, thrown down on the ground in the midst of all of the nation of Israel. She is surrounded by people in the temple. And how does she feel? She feels scared. She feels afraid of judgment. She knows, probably because she's probably a Jewish woman, that she knows she deserves to die. I'm sure she is nervous. But deeper down, how does she truly feel about her sin? I guarantee you that there is a burden of shame that she carries with her. But then notice what Jesus says again in verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said, A woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. The grace of God is more powerful than any sin. And the grace of God is more powerful than any shame that we feel. Let me say that again. The grace of God is more powerful than any sin. And the grace of God is more powerful than any shame we feel. 
What does this woman deserve? She deserves to be killed. And Jesus extends to her forgiveness of her sin. Friends, we have a temptation in our lives to be like the Pharisees, to point out all the wrongs of others without looking at ourselves. And we have the temptation of the woman here in the court. That we have the temptation to live under the weight of shame. And listen, friends, shame, as I said in the beginning, shame is not of Jesus, but that is of the enemy. If you are living in the past, we all make mistakes. Can I get an amen to that one? Let me say that again. We all make mistakes, amen? Let's say that again. We all make mistakes, amen? Thank you. All right, preach. All right, thank you. So, but what do we typically do? Let's just be real. Like, we, we, we think about all of the mistakes of the past, and guess what? Those sins are forgiven. They were forgiven on the cross, past, present, and future. But what do we typically do, especially as we get older? We look at all of the mistakes in our past. We live in the past and live in the shame that we had 20 years ago. But their shame and your sin was paid for on the cross. You are set free. You are set free from the chains of sin and death. That sin no longer has dominion over you. That because of the blood of Christ... Your sin is paid and you are free to live from the crippling weight of shame and sin. If you are living under that weight, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your sins and your mistakes are all paid for. His grace and his love and his sacrifice is sufficient to pay for all your sins, past, present, and future. The grace of God overpowers sin and shame. But then notice the principle, third principle here in John chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Let us not miss what the last phrase and what Jesus says. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did, did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. What are the three principles of grace? Think grace before judgment by realizing your own sin. Grace overpowers shame. And then number three is that grace empowers purity. Grace empowers purity. What does Jesus say? From now on, sin no more. Logically speaking, if we are extended grace and God forgives us for all of the sin that we ever have, then what's the logical conclusion? Then I can do whatever I want, right? That is, that is the law. If Jesus, if God forgives me anyways, then I can do whatever I want. But that is not true. What does it say in Romans chapter 6 verses 1 and 2? Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Verse 2, of course not. May Genoita, God forbid. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? The grace of God does not free us to live immorally, but it empowers us to live with purity. But logically speaking, that makes no sense. But I would imagine you today have experienced grace and it caused you to want to live in a pure manner. Let me ask you a question. Uh, when is a time that a parent, when is a time that a teacher, when is a time that a boss, when is a time that a church member or a pastor or a spouse or a close friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, when is a time that they extended to you grace? When they didn't just 
smash you. Sorry if I woke some of you up. They didn't just smash you into shame and say, oh, you should be so embarrassed of yourself. Blah, 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 blah. But instead of weighing under you guilt, they said, I forgive you without you ever prompting forgiveness. If you've ever been extended true grace, what is your reaction to that? Your reaction is the opposite of what you might think. If someone extends you grace, it makes you loyal, it makes you committed, it makes you dedicated, it makes you even more loving and even more merciful. That is the same with God. I think so much that if, if God is going to forgive me anyways, then I can just do what I want. But the opposite is totally true, that the grace of God does not empower immorality, but it powers purity. The three principles that I see is think grace before judgment. The grace of God overpowers shame. and The grace of God empowers purity. There are three principles and three characters found in John chapter 8. But let us just answer the million dollar question. So what? How do I take something that happened 2,000 years ago in a country halfway around the world, and how do I transport that to the 21st century to something that I can apply and it change my life? My application for you today is quite simple, is to pick a character. To pick a character. Are you the woman? Are you the woman? Are you currently living with some sort of shameful secret, a shameful sin, one that is rotting your bones away from the inside out? Have you carried a burden of sin for a long time? Perhaps even here today, outwardly, you seem that you have it all together. You seem that you're all well put together. But maybe on the inside, some sin or some shame is rotting you away. If that is you, what do you need? Two things. You need to fully embrace and understand the grace and the forgiveness of God. The grace of God is powerful enough to relinquish the chains of sin and death. And number two, you need a brother in Christ or sister in Christ. If you are living in sin or shame that is on your shoulder at all times, whispering in your ear of how you fail and how you don't measure up and how God doesn't really love you and how they don't really like you, blah, 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 then you need to remind yourself of the grace of God and have accountability with a brother or sister in Christ. Let me remind you of two verses, if you're the woman, living in shame or living with some sin in your life. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you don't know this one, if you haven't read it in a while, if you haven't memorized this verse, uh, put it in your mind, because it is wonderful. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. I'm going to read verse 1 again. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're struggling in your relationship with the Lord, if you feel like you can't really approach him because of some kind of barrier that is in your life, guess what? Your sins are paid for, that there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then the other, there's another scripture in, 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 in tandem. That we, that, we're, that we should listen for. We should not walk this Christian life alone. If you are an island, 
If you are walking your spiritual life alone, then the enemy has lied to you. We are not meant to be islands in this world, in this Christian life, but that we are meant to be a body and a family of Christ. What does it say in James chapter 5, verse 16? It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you can be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. If you're living with sin that is eating your lunch, if you're living with shame that is holding you back, embrace the grace of God, Romans 8.1, and find a brother or sister in Christ to confess your sins to and hold you accountable. Pick a character. Are you the woman or are you the Pharisees? We, if we live in the flesh, if we live empowered of ourselves, we typically find our way slowly but surely to the camp of the Pharisees who only see the mistakes of others without realizing the grace that they have received. If you are constantly criticizing other people, whether that be, listen, whether that be your spouse or your children or somebody in church or a preacher, <laughs> okay, we like to pick on preachers, okay, uh, well, I don't know about that guy, okay, we, if you're constantly picking on somebody, then probably you're a Pharisee. What you're probably trying to do is make yourself feel a little bit more spiritual than those around you, but guess what, you have, the grace of God has forgiven far more sins than, he is, than you could ever forgive of another person. Instead of finding the, uh, the mistakes of other people, instead of putting them down under the weights and measures of rules and laws, extend to them the grace that you have received. Are you the Pharisees? Are you quick to criticize? Or do you need to be like Jesus? None of us are Jesus. We can't pick him as a character. And if you pick Jesus as your character, then probably you're living in delusional land saying that you are him. But we can be like Jesus, who sees the mistakes of others, and instead of condemning them, we extend to them love and mercy and unmerited favor. Which one are you? Are you the woman needing to be set free from shame and sin? Then flee immorality. Embrace your freedom and find a brother or sister in Christ to confess your sin to? Are you the Pharisees who only see the wrongs of others? If you only see the wrongs of others, then you fail to see the grace that you've been given. Or do you need to be like Jesus? Instead of seeing the shame and sin of others, that you would extend to them grace and mercy in their time of need. Let us not be those that live under the chains of sin and death. Let us not be the ones that have a measuring stick for everyone else to measure up to. But let us rather live lives that are free from the chains of sin and death. Lives that live as new creations. Lives that live as children and heirs of God. Who have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Let us be like Jesus, that when we see the mistakes of others, we extend to them forgiveness and love. I uh, came, aqua, uh, came, across, uh, came across a quote that summarizes this idea 
of the passage of shame, grace, and judgment. It says this. This is Spurgeon declaring this, and he is far more famous than I. Shame is so abhorrent that it is one of the ingredients of hell itself. Indeed, one of the bitterest drops in that awful cup of misery. Human nature is such that we will do whatever is in our power to cover up our sin and our shame. However, there is nothing that will suffice except for that work which is unfolded from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Only when Christ covers you with the garments of salvation can shame be taken away. For Christ is the Redeemer. He redeems humanity. And in His infinite power, He has redeemed shame itself. What was once one of the ingredients of hell is now a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit to guide men to repentance. Amen. Here in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and we will ask two of our prayer partners to come forward. And if you would need someone to have a time of ministry, if you would like to pray with somebody here this morning, you can. This is an opportunity. They will be here during the last song and then after the service itself. If you would like to have somebody to pray to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, they will be here for that as well. Before I close, I, um, if you're here today and you really don't know what this Christian life is really all about, if you're just kind of all confused and all what's going on with all this Byron stuff, talking about the grace and shame and judgment and all, the first step in really engaging in a relationship with the Lord is believing in Him as your Lord and Savior. But you can't really believe until you realize your own thirst and hunger for something more that the world cannot give. What does Jesus say? Come to me, all those who are thirsty and hungry for spiritual things. Friends, if you have never believed and surrendered to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then he offers you the gift of eternal life that gushes up rivers of life. Believe in Jesus and you shall be saved. Bow with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Um, what a story. You know, it's, 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 a, it's an amazing story of, of your love and your mercy and your grace. And we see in the story, this, this, the, the struggles that we all have of the Pharisees, how we look down upon other people for their mistakes, but forget the grace that we have been shown. God, allow us uh, not to presuppose the mistakes of others, but Lord, that we would behold your grace in our lives and that we would extend it to other people. Lord, I thank you for the gospel and how it changes our lives. Lord, I pray in this last song and far beyond, Lord, that you would continue to move and your spirit would embolden us to fellowship together after the service, to make other people feel warm and loved. And Lord, I pray that this would be a time of ministry and that you would be glorified and worshipped. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you for our uh, uh, dedication to your word. Lord, I pray that it would never uh, be boring or void. Lord, but that it would ring true in our lives. Thank you for today. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.